episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka. We're here with Professor Akil Amar, as always. Hello, Akil. And by here, uh, we mean back in the good old U.S. of A. Welcome back, Andy. We're welcoming back our audience, but we're also welcoming you back uh, from your overseas adventures. Yeah, I've been in Japan for almost three weeks, which was really fascinating from many points of view. I uh, At one point, I went to a, uh, a place called Naoshima, which is an island that uh, consists, uh, it's, it's lightly inhabited, um, but heavily uh, art infested. There's uh, something like six or seven museums and many outdoor installations. And one of the things that they had at one of the museums was uh, a work of art which consisted of a clause of the Constitution of Japan, um, which had to do with uh, Japan not arming itself. Um, but it was very interesting that they included, of course, this is Constitution adopted, not quite at gunpoint, but you know, in, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of, of the Japanese surrender. Um, so, but quite interesting. And we're going to talk actually about arming and a gunpoint, um, and island nations, and uh, connections to constitutionalism. That's actually going to be very relevant to our episode this week and next week, in fact, Andy. Yeah, great point. Um, and that wasn't rehearsed, believe it or not. Um, so, uh, and I guess it goes to what we were talking about last time in terms of making connections, and I think there are some extraordinary connections we're going to be able to make today. Yes, between the two Jordans. Yes. Um, first, though, a little bit of business. Good news for our audience. As you know, we've been making our last couple of episodes available through the good graces of the New Jersey State Bar Association for continuing legal education credit. And this episode is no exception. And later in the episode, I'll be reading a code so that any lawyers and uh, judges that are members of the bar in their respective states um, or the District of Columbia throughout the country uh, are eligible for CLE one way or the other. Let me just clarify, because it can be a little confusing, I think, how that works. If you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York, when you go to the website after after listening to the podcast with armed with the code we're going to give you to claim your CLE, you go to podcast.njsba.com. NJSBA stands for New Jersey State Bar Association. That's how you can remember it, um, or you can write it down. And you just fill out the form. And those three states have already certified that just by virtue of doing that, you will get CLE. Um, in New York and New Jersey, the, the New Jersey State Bar Association will issue you a certificate of attendance. In Pennsylvania, they don't use certificates of attendance, but just by filling out the form, New Jersey will report to Pennsylvania for you that you have earned this CLE. So basically, you just do it and you get your CLE. In every other state, or virtually every other state, like in Massachusetts, for example, there is no CLE requirement. But in virtually every other state, there will be a reciprocal arrangement, and each state is different how that works. So you'd have to check with your own state, which is something you would have to do anyway, um, you know, in general, to get CLE from uh, any place other than your own state's provided sources. So you can get it, um, and you will still go to podcast.njsba.com to get it, but um, 
you know, the, the tech, Technical details are, are different in each state. Over the next months, I think we're going to try to prepare some sort of chart for the different reciprocal arrangements so that you can sort of look them up. But in the meantime, it's it's you know it's not a big thing to contact your bar association and figure it out. Okay, so that's one point. And then the other point is more good news. We're we're making as of today a whole bunch of our back catalog available for CLE as well. So episodes including uh, several on uh, the Dobbs decision. We had one called uh, Woe is Roe, another one called Is There a Dobbs Deal? Um, and those are available for, for CLE. Recent episodes that were very popular with Will Bode and Mike Paulson um, on the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which we may talk about today again briefly. Which we will um, talk about today. Mm-hmm. Um, those also are available for CLE and a whole bunch of others. You'll be able to tell which ones they are by looking at the descriptions, uh, either in your podcast service or on our website, akilamar.com. Uh, and you'll see that the episodes will, are, will have a CLE in the description. So very easy. Just go and look at the list of episodes and you'll see the ones that have CLE in the description and you'll be able to to uh, to do that. And of course, this will mean listening to the episode so that you can get the code. Um, that's the idea. So if you listen to it before, uh, you'll have to listen to it again. But if you didn't listen to it before, you're in for a treat because these are these we didn't just select these randomly. These are among our most interesting and most kind of CLE worthy episodes in terms of the amount of legal content um, and plus just great guests and episodes that we're particularly proud of. And we're going to be making more of the back catalog available over time, but right now a whole bunch of them more than you can listen to uh, this week, I'm sure. So check that out. Okay. And now on to today's episode. And when I say today, I really mean today because we're going to talk about things that are in the news today, which have uh, clear constitutional implications. Uh, so why two Jordans? Um, well, Akil, why don't you tell me? One is Jim Jordan. We're recording this on Sunday. He has been nominated uh, to the speakership by the Republican Conference, the Republican Caucus. We don't know what's going to happen on the floor. That's going to be a public voice vote and not a secret ballot vote. So. So the first Jordan is Jim Jordan, who is on the precipice of possibly being elected Speaker of the House, which some people believe would put him next in line for the presidency after Kamala Harris. I say some people because we're going to talk about whether the presidential succession law is in fact constitutional. We're going to talk about whether Jim Jordan is properly eligible for this under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of of things related to Jim Jordan, who some of you may recall did play a particularly interesting, quote unquote, role in connection with the activities of January 6th, 2021. So we're going to talk about Jim Jordan. That's one of the first two Jordans in the news as we record this episode on Sunday. And of course, so that's, of course, the one Jordan. The other Jordan is the nation of Jordan, which adjoins the nation of Israel, which is right across the Gulf from the Gaza Strip. And our hearts go out, of course, to our our friends in Israel. We're going to be talking about all of that and the importance of 
national boundaries and borders and defensible borders. And that's why an island nations and armies and gunpoint and all of those things. Because the two big stories in the news really are Jim Jordan and the Middle East, one of whose very important countries is the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And we're going to, believe it or not, make connections between these two issues, both of which have deep constitutional implications, uh, implications involving in both situations, not just the founding, but the reconstruction. Okay, well, let's start with uh, some of the issues surrounding Jim Jordan um, and this business about a new speaker. And some of these things that we're going to talk about, we may have mentioned in previous podcasts, but, um, you know, we don't have a requirement that you have listened to all our podcasts in order to listen to this one. So we might rehash some things. Uh, but let's try and get, you know, all the issues surrounding the speaker in one bundle here, or at least many of them. Um, and this bundle may stretch over a couple of episodes, but um, we'll see. And Andy, on this, uh, this couple of episodes, I, I think actually we promise we will revisit it once the House has voted on Jordan. We're recording this before that key House vote. So there are going to be more issues. And, and of course, the issues of Israel and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and the Gaza Strip are going to uh, continue into next week. So, so we're recording this on Sunday. We're going to upload it as usual, uh, Tuesday, midnight, Wednesday, but we'll immediately do a, a related episode on both Jordans for ideally for, for, for uploading um, next week. Yeah. Unless the world interferes somehow with some other <laughs> matter <laughs> coming up, which uh, does tend to happen. In terms of what's going on now, one of the things that I've been reading is uh, there's been criticism that the House is without a speaker uh, currently, and that means they can't get anything done, people are saying. Now, of course, we talked about this when Kevin McCarthy was running for speaker, that the first duty of the House is in, in each new, when each new House, each new Congress um, is convened, is to elect a speaker. But is it the same situation here? The Congress has is already, I suppose, in session, or isn't it? Um, why can't the House get anything done now and getting something done would seem to include electing a speaker. So how do they do that if they can't get anything done? Uh, so the House of Representatives is not a continuing, continuous body, unlike the, the Senate. This has profound constitutional implications that have manifested themselves, especially um, during the Civil War. It's an issue that I actually discuss in a chapter uh, it's chapter nine of America's unwritten constitution because in the Civil War, or right after the Civil War, this was particularly significant. So on day one of a new Congress, the, the Senate, you know, most of the members of the Senate are just holdovers from the previous Senate, two, two thirds of them presumably, and that's not including the new third, many of whom are reelected, members of the, the old body. On day one of the House of Representatives, that's not the case. Let me actually just read the audience. We're not going to do lots of reading. Uh, but well, just, plus, you just, you just said that the Senate was, you just called it a new body. In fact, it's, it's the old body. It just has some new members. Exactly. So, and, and it's not altogether different then from, let's say, the Supreme Court, okay, which never really turns over all at once. The presidency turns over all at once, the House turns over all at once. The Supreme Court almost never does as a practical matter. 
The Senate never does so as a structural, logical matter, because unless there was some nuclear accident or something that killed them all you know, immediately or something like that, it's designed to be this continuing body that's built into the structure of the Senate, and the House is altogether different. Of course, there were different issues when you had the first Congress, because um, there was no body that was being inherited, and there uh, were the no very, Supreme Court Day justices. one of the, yes, in 1789, in March. That, um, but then after that, the Senate was always basically in existence. So, so here's what I wrote way back when. Let's just think about congressional replenishment. The senatorial renewal process usually works quite smoothly. Members leave the Senate early upon death, resignation, or expulsion. Otherwise, a senator departs the Senate whenever his term is up, unless, of course, he's reelected and reseated. New members arrive by dint of their popular election or a temporary gubernatorial appointment pursuant to the rules of the 17th Amendment. And just, you know, by the way, that gubernatorial appointment, that's what uh, just happened in California, California. Um, mm-hmm. because of the death of Senator Feinstein. Okay. Officially, the Senate itself decides, judges in the phraseology of Article 1, Section 5, whether a newly elected or appointed senator was duly elected or appointed, and whether he or she meets the Constitution's eligibility rules. The Senate is structured to ensure that it never turns over all at once in the wake of a regular biennial election. Ordinarily, two-thirds of the Senate's members remain in their seats after an election, and at any single moment, the vast majority of senators are typically duly seated holdovers from previous election cycles. There is virtu- there, thus, there is virtually always a quorum of continuing senators able to rule on any questions that might arise concerning the contested credentials of a new senator or group of new senators, even a sizable group. As when the holdover senators in late 1865 confronted a significant number of controversial Southern claimants simultaneously seeking admission. This is when the South, having lost the Civil War, said, okay, we're ready to rejoin and we'd like our um, seats in the Senate, please. And again, this is from a chapter of a book, America's Unwritten Constitution, I wrote back in 2012. But here is now the edgy part. House replenishment is far more edgy because the House is not a continuing body. Every two years, the old house legally dies, and an entirely new house legally springs to life. Although many members, most members nowadays, seek and win re-election time and again, none of these old hands, legally speaking, are holdovers from a previous election cycle. No member, not even a 30-year house veteran who has been the speaker for the past decade, is already a member of the new house before any other member, even an incoming freshman. The formal non-continuity of the House raises profound theoretical questions. On day one of the new House, who organizes it? Who sits in the chair? Who guards the doors? Who decides, at least provisionally, who has been duly elected? Who decides, at least for the moment, who meets the eligibility rules? Who decides who decides? Who decides who decides who decides? And so on. In other words, How does the new house give birth to itself? How does it bootstrap itself into operation at its first meeting? And then final sentences. Ordinarily, these deep questions are rather academic. Typically, 
only a few seats in any election cycle are plausibly subject to contestation on day one. That would be like the George Santos issue, for example, last time around. But in December 1865, the issue was not merely theoretical. It was real and huge, and the credentials, as the credentials of virtually all the self-proclaimed representatives of the Old South were reasonably subject to challenge on day one. So usually they just kind of muddle their way through theoretically because it's kind of pretty clear to everyone in America that almost all these folks have been properly elected and duly certified back in their home states. And there's not really contestation about more than a handful. And usually, even if there is contestation about more than a handful, nothing pivotal turns on that because one party typically, not recently, but typically has a sufficient majority of the House that even if one or two or three seats need to be resolved, they can still put that to one side and and do their business on day one, which consists, Andy, and this is to your question, the first thing they have to do is basically pick a speaker. And then once they've picked a speaker, they can adopt rules of proceeding and do everything else. But their first job is to transform themselves from a rabble, from a mob, from just a crowd into a proper assembly with parliamentary procedures, Robert Rules of Order, and all the rest. And the way they do that, historically, is by picking a speaker. So the only item of business at the outset is picking a speaker. And what does the Constitution say about that? Doesn't say a lot um, explicitly. Here's the specific words, Andy. In Article 1, Section 2, last sentence, the Constitution provides, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. And then there's the companion language in Article 1, Section 2. Three, that says the following, the vice president of the United States shall be the president of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The Senate shall choose their other officers and also a president pro tempore, what we say pro tem, in the absence of the vice president or when he shall exercise the office of president of the United States. So Article 1, Section 2 says the House picks its speaker. Article 1, Section 3 says the Senate's presiding officer is the vice president, but they also pick their other officers, including a president pro tem. So, therefore, it's not the Constitution that says that the first thing that happens is that they choose a speaker. It's a question of the rules of the House. Is that right? It's a matter of kind of general parliamentary procedure, tradition. Remember, the Constitution isn't sort of the first um, time that we, we, we've ever had deliberative assemblies. So there's hundreds of years of parliamentary practice and tradition. There are a dozen years of state constitutional experience. Um, and before that, uh, 100 years of colonial constitutional experience with things that are called houses of, of representatives or something very similar to that, House of Commons, House of Delegates, and the like. And so this is in 1789. It's not you know, America's first parliamentary rodeo. Well, I mean, so the reason I'm, I bring this up as being whether or not it's you know, a matter of procedure or, or their own rules or whatever is because right now, suppose an emergency took place, um, and the House needed to act, 
about something and it wasn't it hadn't chosen a speaker yet now you have a a temporary speaker so let's talk about that so today we're without a, a permanent speaker but we're not quite in exactly the same position as we are day one biennially day one to repeat first of all i left some questions open in, in the, those passages that i read you congress passed a statute during the Civil War in anticipation of the Reconstruction about day one, because it saw some of these issues coming. Here's what Congress did in the Civil War, anticipating that there were going to be some really big Reconstruction issues involving not one contested election or something, but a whole bunch contested because the contestation would be, are these states actually states in good standing such uh, with the Republican government such that they can actually demand seats in in the house. And so they saw this issue coming and they realized, oh, there are all these uh, metaphysical day one issues. So here's what they provided for. On March 3rd, 1863, and see that's an important date. It's the last day of congressional term. And they're passing all sorts of important laws. On March 3rd. It was the last day of the congressional term in those days. In those days. Obviously correct. it's changed it's changed now. Yeah. Correct. Correct. In those the days, it 20th was... 20th Amendment, right? Exactly so. Wow. Yes, exactly so. But back then, presidents were sworn in on March 4th, and that's um, uh, Congress sort of took office on March 4th. And March 3rd is the last day of the, of the old Congress. On March 3rd, 1863, the 37th Congress, in its waning hours, enacted a law to solve the day one problem already visible on the horizon. The immediate aim of the law was to provide rules for the impending meeting of the 38th Congress in December 1863, but the statute operated more generally, specifying the procedures that would apply at every opening of a new Congress. Under this law, whenever a new house met for the first time, it would be the responsibility of the clerk of the previous house to call the roll of the new house and to place on that roll call list only those persons whom the clerk deemed to be, quote, regularly elected. They said, here's who's in the chair, this ministerial officer, not, not actually a member of the house, a, a clerk, a kind of um, functionary, but the clerk would have been picked by the old house majority, you see. So they, they pick a clerk, and they say, you're going to be in the chair even after formally we've died and dissolved, we're picking you and you're going to be in the chair at, in the early nanoseconds and you're only supposed to call the role of the person whom you deem to be, quote, regularly elected, unquote. So you make the provisional determination of who is the new house. And you might say, well, how can the old Congress do this? They're, you know, they're legally dead. And I have an analysis of why this seems to me a permissible because you need someone to do it, and the Necessary and Proper Clause authorizes Congress to pass laws to fill in all sorts of constitutional gaps, like the Electoral Count Act, like a Presidential Succession Act, and other things. So you, you, you need a law, and this law was passed by the House and by the Senate and signed by the President, and so they're, sort of, they're all buying into the system, and the House is saying, here's how we want our successors to be jump-started, and the Senate is saying, like, we're the big brother, we're the upper house of the legislature, we're continuous, and we approve of this, you know, and the president adds his signature to the thing. So that's as good as you're going to get in terms of kind of legitimacy, and we need a solution. 
And it seems to me the best solution would be one that Congress provides for by law in advance, and that's what it provided for, and that's been the law ever since. So on day one, the clerk of the old house sits and first thing he or she does is recognize the initial regularly elected, quote unquote, members of the new house. Okay, so just to clarify, so that applies to the the opening of the house, the beginning of the. Does it apply? Do all those procedures apply now? Does yes. The law does the statute apply now? Yes. Because it's not the opening of the house. It's uh, so. Would you say? Oh, that oh, house- oh, oh! Now you mean? I'm sorry. If, I, I misunderstood. Now it, it it applies in today's world, but no, um, we're not on day one anymore. So I'm going to get to that in a minute. But let me first just tell you what happens on day one. So the first thing that happens is the clerk sits in the chair the clerk of the old house. Then the clerk calls the roll among the people that he recognizes as regularly elected, but he can't really easily pull a fast one because the country ordinarily has a pretty good sense of who's properly been elected. And the only issue, frankly, last time around probably was George Santos and three districts maybe where they were still doing counting and recounting and re-recounting. Okay. So uh, m- maybe there was one or two. I can't, I can't remember. But on day one, the only issue really was George Santos, I think. Well, okay. so, so that brings up another question, of course. Does the clerk, um, his job of making sure that people are regularly elected, does that mean um, that uh, – that they are qualified, that they meet the constitutional qualifications? Does he make inquiry into how old they are um, or whether or not they violated the 14th Amendment, Section 3? I mean, did a clerk make a determination about Jim Jeffords? Now, of course, it hadn't – yeah. So, I mean, you know, in in 2022, 2023, when he was most recently uh, sworn in, I guess, uh, once again – one could say that the clerk had made a determination that he hadn't violated 14th Amendment Section 3, or or maybe not. This is similar to the, the question of Mike Pence's role on January 6th. I think the idea is, this is the first cut. This is just who decides who decides. And the clerk decides that these are the people who have been certified by their home states. They're going to, in turn, have to be the judges of uh, elections and all the rest. They can choose to exclude someone or expel someone. So, but I think in that, this person might say, you know, I don't have a mandate to do much other than the most ministerial things, just to see who's been, and here's the phrase, regularly elected. Okay, so you decide what that means. Because we've had incidences recently of functionaries kind of inserting themselves into important constitutional processes. So there's a question of whether the, the archivist should be certifying the ERA, and there's a, there was um, the question of the, the parliamentarian in making certain rules you know, in the, in the House and the Senate on January 6th. This was important. This is not an elected individual. So, so we do have um, you know, these unelected people making important... And ordinarily, you see, these are somewhat theoretical, even though deeply important, because we're talking about one or two or three contestations, and the margin is so um, overwhelming, typically, for one party or the other, that it doesn't matter that much how these deep theoretical issues are resolved. Suppose he excludes someone, but then immediately the, the others say, okay, we let this person in. Suppose he includes that person, the others immediately kick him out. Okay. So ordinarily problems arise when there are a whole bunch of contestations, which was going to happen when the states that had purported to secede 
you know, en masse said, we're back. Okay, that wasn't going to be one person or two people. It was going to be dozens of people. Now it might matter, you know, even preliminarily, who decides who decides and, and, and all the rest. Okay. And of course, one of the factors now that that's different from that is that the the uh, the house is very close. Yes. You know, that might be, and we've been talking about this might be why George Santos hasn't been tossed out on his ear yet. Correct. You know, is, um, is that they need his vote. Um, and he, and that house, that seat could easily flip um, if, if there were another election. Correct. And Dianne Feinstein probably should have stepped down before her death, but she didn't in part because the Senate is almost evenly divided and the Republicans weren't going to let her step down and have someone else sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee or something, or they weren't going to let her rotate off the committee. or something. There were some issues. And again, these issues don't arise when one party has 55 seats in the Senate, you know, as opposed to 50 or 51, you know, or when one party has 250 seats in the House rather than 221. You need 218. Okay. So mm -hmm. part of the problem is we're just on such knife edges and not just in the, in the House, but in the Senate too. But the Senate at least is a continuing body. But okay, we're still in day one. Um, yeah, but just, before we before we leave, we're never going to get out of day one. <laughs> I know, but, but but that's okay because that's what we do. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. At, yes. We're trying to give people things that they don't already know. Mm -hmm. Um and that means we have to explore issues we haven't necessarily thought about before. Right. And by we, you, you know, mean I haven't thought about them before. So this is why I'm worried that you can ask me a question I can't answer. But I did want to correct the record on, on, on one thing. This 1863 law that I said is still in place has been modified. It was modified in 1867. And here's the details on that. Over the past century and a half, I write, actual institutional practices follow the general pattern firmly established in the 1860s. First, by the March 1863 statute, next by its high-profile implementation in December 1865, and finally by the enactment of a revised statute in 1867. That's the statute that's basically still on the books. The 1867 Act specified a fallback list of officials, a kind of line of succession in the event the clerk of the previous house was not able to perform his day one duties. You know, first after the clerk in the line of succession was the sergeant at arms of the previous house. This 1867 law, with some modification, has remained in effect to the present day. So you see why, actually, let's just work our way, you know, through, through the issues. In 1863, Congress thought it was really important to have some regular answer to this, ideally by a statute, and ideally in advance of the problem, and getting a buy-in from the House, the Senate, and the President. Great. They specify the clerk. But now when you think, and that worked in 1865, December 1865, and, and it worked pretty well. But now they're thinking, oh, and, and of course, Andy, this is the first thing you say. Like, well, what happens if the clerk, you know, gets pneumonia? What happens if the, the, the clerk dies or something? Now, you, you know, we, we've had this sensible statute, and, but it all pivots on this clerk, at least for the first few nanoseconds. And, and now, you know, what? So, of course, it would be sensible to have, as it were, a line of succession for this first nanosecond chair occupier. And so it's, it's the clerk, and if the clerk is unavailable, the sergeant arms. And that statute, which was 1867, is still on the books today. Okay, so back on day one of this current electoral cycle, there was the clerk, the clerk called the, the role among the people that the clerk recognized. I can't remember, I think George Santos may have actually um, uh, been asked to step aside. I, actually, we, we should probably know the answer to this, Andy. Um, was Santos an, um, uh, sworn in along with everyone else immediately, or was he asked to step aside? But in any event, first item of business is to elect a speaker. 
Once you have a speaker, you can start to do the next item of business, which is coming up with the rules of the house. And you might say, well, what are the rules of the house before that? And, and, and they've been, they varied over time. They're either the rules from the previous house that hold over at least you know, provisionally and, until the new house has gotten itself organized, or what's called general parliamentary procedure, like Robert's Rules of Order, over the course of history have varied as to whether they follow the holdover rules of the previous house, even though that previous house has turned into a pumpkin, you know, because it's past midnight, it no longer exists, but its rules kind of have an afterglow or general parliamentary procedure. But either way, the first thing you do, the, the clerk provisionally recognizes people in the roll call. Then the next thing that they do, the next thing, that, and they can't do anything else until they pick a speaker because otherwise they're a, a rabble. And then after that, the next thing they immediately do is decide what rules they're going to follow because that's what actually turns them into a proper um, organizing assembly. Now we're going to talk about what happens today, which is a little different because we actually have a, you know, not a clerk, but a provisional speaker under the pre-existing rules that were adopted on day one. And those rules say that this provisional speaker can do one and only one thing, which is preside over the selection of a permanent speaker. But we have some rules that are in place now that ordinarily wouldn't be in, in place in the first nanoseconds of day one. So um, it looks like George Santos was sworn in on January 7th. Um, there's a picture here of him raising his hand uh, and he's along with all, a whole bunch of other representatives that are raising their hands. Okay, because so they were like regularly elected. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that was probably the correct ruling because the claim wasn't that he hadn't been regularly elected. The claim was that he should be tossed out on his ear, but that's not the decision that the clerk can make. Now that I think about it, of course, this was the right answer. See, we, we don't rehearse everything, audience. We're just working our way through these issues. But, but he was regularly elected. I think he should have been ex, uh, expelled by a two-thirds vote in the next nanosecond. But, and Andy, you and I talked about this at the time. And you said he won't be. And I said, yes, but he should be. And you said, but he won't be. And you were right. And the reason he wouldn't be, I said, but he's such an embarrassment. But they needed every vote because they don't have 250. They have like 222 and they need 218 to organize the chamber, you know, to pick your speaker. And they didn't have anything to spare. And indeed, when they picked Kevin McCarthy, he needed Santos's vote and he still had 15 ballots before he finally got approved. So they just didn't have the luxury of tossing out this person who deserves to be tossed out on his ear. Yep. Um, we should move on to, to the next thing. But before we leave it, just a, a note on this uh, clerk of the house that you've been uh, mentioning. Um, in the book uh, by our friend Joanne Freeman, um, Field of Blood, about violence in Congress, um, she uses as a fulcrum uh, the diary of Benjamin Brown French, who was the clerk of the house um, in the 1840s and had a very colorful um, existence. Uh, for for a decade, he wasn't the clerk for decades, but he had one role or another for a long time uh, in the House, and he actually had been member of both parties. He had a bird's um, eye view on all sorts of amazing stuff in the, uh, f f uh, especially the eighteen forties and fifties, the the era of Clay, Webster, Calhoun, the caning of Sumner, all that stuff. And those are mainly Senate members, but but the House actually had all sorts of interesting goings on with John Quincy Adams and others. Yeah, there's a story, I don't know, maybe apocryphal, that says that he actually uh, physically restrained uh, John Wilkes Booth at uh, Abraham Lincoln's um, inauguration. 
uh, that uh, Booth had, had gained access to the, the Capitol Rotunda. Oh, I, I, I've, I've seen a picture of Booth in the audience at, in, at Lincoln's inauguration, um, second inauguration. That's, that's true. They have a picture, and you, and he's recognizable. You know, it's, a, it's a, this is amazing, just how good photography you know was. You you can spot him in the crowd. Yes, that's true. I didn't know the story about his being restrained, but he was there. Yeah, this guy was a real zealot. He was present at present at the Gettysburg Address. He was in charge of Lincoln overseeing Lincoln's funeral. You know, so you name it, and he was there. So anyway, just a. And it's a great book. Field of Blood is a great book. A big shout out to our friend Joanne Freeman. Joanne, answer our phone calls next time. <laughs> we keep inviting you for stuff. Okay, this is this is in our ever scholar capacity because we we've tried to invite uh, Joanne forever because she's absolutely the best, but she's hard to reach. Yes, indeed. Well, she's in demand. What can you say? Today we're no longer in day one. So the the House at the outset did pick a speaker. Uh, It took a while, Kevin McCarthy. It then decided on its rules, and its rules provided that if something happens to Kevin McCarthy, if lightning strikes him, you know, if he falls sick, um, or as it turns out, he he's um, removed by through a motion to vacate the chair. This was the Matt. Gates' motion, then there would be a provisional speaker that the, the pre-existing day one rules so provided, but under the pre-existing day one rules, this speaker has one and only one function, to preside over a process by which a new speaker is uh, uh, pr- elected. And that's where we are right now. And without a new speaker, yes, there are some rules that have already been adopted, but there's not someone who can basically administer the rules because this provisional person under the rules themselves has a mandate to do one and only one thing, which is to preside over the election of a new speaker. And that's where we are. So short of electing a new speaker, is there any procedure under which the House could actually act if it needed to? I'm not sure how they would do that because by parliamentary practice, the first thing you do is pick a speaker. And Andy, you remember, we talked about, it was an earlier episode involving John Quincy Adams and Henry Wise, I believe, a slaveocratic Whig from Virginia. Let's see if we can find this together because they couldn't pick a speaker and they couldn't pick a speaker and they were going, you know. Now uh, we are a mob. Now we are a mob, okay? Because without a speaker, we are a mob. It's John Quincy Adams and Henry Wise. And they actually then nominate, the, a Southerner is nominating, you know, the, the, the rabid Yankee John Quincy Adams to, John Quincy Adams basically says, I'm in charge here. And he just like takes over from the, the clerk. And this was a previous episode in American history where they couldn't pick the speaker for a while. When the House dissolved into chaos during the commencement of the 26th Congress in December 1839, back then December was the first day the Congress used to meet. They, they, you're elected to Congress in November of an even year and the first meeting was uh, the beginning of December of an odd year. So December 1839, uh, at the first meeting of the 26th Congress, congressmen looked the highly intelligent, dependably impartial, maddeningly articulate congressman from Massachusetts, that is John Quincy Adams, the former president of the United States, to execrate them from their predicament. New Jersey had sent 10 men to occupy five disputed congressional seats. So there's not one dispute, there are five. And the question is whether you provisionally, you know, each party claimed that it won the whole slate and whom do you provisionally seat? 
Okay, five were Whigs, certified by the Whig governor, and five were Democrats, certified by the secretary, the state secretary of state. Oh my God, doesn't this sound like like Florida two thousand or something? This, the House clerk, Hugh Garland, called only the name of the New Jersey representative whose claim to a sixth seat was undisputed. So he wasn't going to try to resolve this dispute about the five. He just picked the one, you know, New Jerseyite who, who was uh, undisputed. The matter of the five contested seats, declared Garland, would be settled after the roll call. The House erupted and the roll call stalled. Garland refused to put any question to the House until it organized itself. But the House could not organize until Garland called the roll which he was unable to complete because of the New Jersey imbroglio. Quote, now we are a mob, unquote, shouted Virginia Congressman Henry Wise. For three days, Congress made no progress toward seating a New Jersey delegation or completing the roll call, the necessary preamble to electing officers. So then the next day, Adams rose from his seat. Okay, because for three days, th these members of the House... Um, all of whom have been duly elected, and there's a debate about five of them, but th there's not a debate about any of the rest, and they're being told what to do by this unelected clerk, you know, the ghost of, of, a, of a previous house that, that's now long dead, and they're chafing this thing. Who is this ministerial person, Andy? This is just what you were asking about. The next day, Adams rose from his seat. I rise to interrupt the clerk, he said. I'm not sure he's allowed to do this. Throughout the, um, the House, representatives cried, hear him, hear him, hear what he has to say. Hear John Quincy Adams. Okay, so he's actually violating parliamentary procedures, just like grabbing the floor, kind of in this in Jimmy Stewart moment or something. In, that, in the silence that fell, Adams addressed his colleagues. What a spectacle we here present. We degrade and disgrace our constituents in our country. We do not and cannot organize. And Why? because the clerk of this house usurps the throne and sets us, the representatives, the vice regents of the whole American people at defiance, unquote. The representatives loudly applauded when he suggested that the clerk sit down and permit them to conduct their own affairs. By acclamation, Congressman chose Adams to preside until officers could be elected. And they, con okay, and they conducted him to the empty speaker's chair a place that in the ensuing days he found decidedly unpleasant. Andy, back then, even though the parties were deeply you know, um, divided and there was still the idea that we need to unite, this is like a government of national unity in, in Israel, um, you know, because that's what a real crisis crystallizes, a house of national unity, and there was one person who actually was focal. E even though he, he was you know, a Yankee, and on one side, he was former president of the United States, the son of another president of the United States who had a lot of credibility. And so even the Southerners, even people like Henry Wise, who actually disagreed with Adams, John Quincy Adams, all sorts of other ways. I actually have major quotations of Wise versus John Quincy Adams in my new book. But the, by acclamation, they all basically put him provisionally in charge because he had credibility as a straight shooter so that they could pick a true speaker, get a proper roll call and all the rest, and then begin to proceed because um, they had to organize themselves. And the clerk actually didn't have much of a, to use a modern expression, democratic mandate. And this was all before the 1863 statute that you know, gave the clerk a, a certain formal juridical legal status. Right. But so it seems to me, though, that if you could 
if you could do this by acclamation, you could do other things by acclamation. Um, and and so maybe it's true that we're divided, but for the purposes of getting something done in the case of an emergency, if if that statute only applies, that the 1867 statute only applies to the initial opening of Congress, why couldn't Congress just organize by acclamation now put, you know, you know, some some longstanding representative that uh, that's kind of towards the middle up there just for the purposes of doing something that everybody knows they're going to be able to do oh, anyway. Oh, 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 my God. If Jordan and Jeffries actually just actually talked and met and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually agree to put so-and-so in the chair, you know, for the next week so we can do other stuff and organize. They could do that, Okay. Um, but they're not doing that. So you're saying that they actually elect a speaker, um, not not so much a provisional speaker, an actual speaker, provisional only in the sense that he agrees to step down. That would still be having a speaker. Yes. Okay. They could do That's- it. There, there are ways that they could do it. We have to, only two parties, and all they have to do, and they tend to follow the, their, their leaders. And maybe the Republicans don't have a leader. Maybe they have two leaders. But if Scalise and, and McCarthy... And Jordan and Jeffries all got together and agreed on something. Those four people, they could they could do anything, they, you know. But they're not agreeing on, you know, they're not getting together. They're now, not they're not pulling. Actually, Andy, now you're seeing the other Jordan because what happened when Israeli grandparents and infants were slaughtered, were massacred, you know, and and this would have deep resonance for anyone who every year gathers at Passover and remembers what happened to Israel, you know, to, to Jewish infants, you know, thousands of years ago under Pharaoh, okay, you know, killing of, of, of Jewish babies, you know, not to mention the Shoah, okay, what did they do? They actually pulled their heads out of their asses and actually formed a government of national unity. There was a moment of blinding clarity. You and I have talked about the phrase, you know, a, a clarifying use of force, or something. A clarifying act of violence. A clarifying act of violence, yes. And this was a clarifying act of violence that reminded Israelis who they are. And by acclamation, and I'm no Bibi Netanyahu fan, you know, make, make no mistake, but, you know, by acclamation, they, uh, they formed, at least provisionally, a government of national unity. We could have a house of national unity today if four people actually said, there's stuff going on in Ukraine. And, and, and it's, but, but see, Jordan doesn't believe, you know, in supporting Ukraine. And there's stuff going on in the Middle East. Um, and there's stuff going on in America. And the American people need leadership. And they're not doing that. But they could. You're right. By, so I've just given you, Andy, we didn't rehearse this. We actually are, are we're, we're working our way through the historic precedents together. This is actually how good constitutional lawyers do it. I've given you the constitutional precedent. It's that Hen- Henry Wise and John Quincy Adams, I promise you, they hate each other on a whole bunch of things. I, um, but they agreed that they have to at, we at least need provisionally to organize ourselves because otherwise we're a mob and we can't do anything as a mob. Here's the language of Federalist number 55. It's the last paragraph of the Federalist number 55. And it's about congressional size. It's saying you can't have a house that's too big because people can't talk to each other. This is James Madison. If every Athenian were a Socrates, every assembly would still have been a mob. Okay, just because, you know, you, it has to be a certain size and you need, and it has to be organized by rules with officers, parliamentary procedure, Robert's rules of order, whatever. And the miracle is that 
every two years, the house almost always manages to transform itself from kind of a mob to a proper assembly in very short order. But that's because, to repeat, ordinarily, we're not on a knife's edge. Um, if, if one party had 250, that wouldn't be a problem. So the obvious solution is, fine, we're two parties, we're on a knife's edge, but the two parties should have America in common, more important than Republican and Democrat. So, and that's the word that you latched onto, acclamation. Why can't they actually at least provisionally agree to do certain things so they can get organized going forward? Okay, a lot there. I'm going to stop for one second. Purposes of our continuing legal education listeners are going to read our code. So the code for this episode is VICTORY. V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. VICTORY. That's not case sensitive, so you don't have to capitalize it or you could capitalize. It doesn't matter. VICTORY is the code. And again, you would go to podcast.njsba.com. And when prompted, you would enter that code victory. Okay, back to this. So, Akil, you uh, you mentioned a, a term. Just just to, I want to just explore this for a minute. Um, clarifying act of violence. So, I'm not sure who coined that, but I certainly have. I was taught it by a great scholar, Professor John Lewis Gaddis, um, and he's a you know, he studies uh, grand strategy among other things, and has written extensively on it. And typically, he views a clarifying, he's taught anyway, a clarifying act of violence as being something that is intentional. So, for example, the, the obvious uh, example is dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That, you know, that, that act didn't kill, for example, as many people as the firebombing of Tokyo had done. But because it was a shock, it was... It was a level of violence in a moment that had been completely unanticipated. It, it, it created a certain clarity to the Japanese that they needed to surrender. Okay, and another example he gives is when Reagan fired the air traffic controllers when they went on strike. That all at once, there was almost a disproportionate response, perhaps, um, but it clarified who, you know, you know what, what the stakes were. But in both cases, these are acts that are being that are being perpetrated on purpose by uh, an individual or an organization in order to achieve a certain purpose uh, that they have in mind. Here, the act is was done by Hamas, okay? Hamas is not trying to unify Israel, okay? <laughs> but but that's it, perhaps what happens. So here's an, an interesting take on it, an unintentional clarifying act of violence or, or perhaps the unintentional consequence that it creates a clarifying act. So perhaps another take on this uh, concept. And you and I are total Godfather uh, fans. The, the book explains how brilliant Vito Corleone's actions are with the producer and the horse. The big point, you know, we were digressing just a little bit, but our, our big point is the Israelis have achieved a government of national unity. And we and cannot even have a house of even provisional unity and acclamation because we are not actually perceiving the threats to us at the moment as existential. You know, inherent in the office of the speaker nowadays or the structure, this structural element here that the speaker is not necessarily a representative, is not necessarily a unifying figure because he comes from 
or she comes from one party and not necessarily, you know, the the part of that party which is closest to the middle of America. Well, and, and but that's true. I mean, you could have said that about Bibi Netanyahu two weeks ago, you know, that he's just from the right. His coalition is of the right. It's not a grand coalition in the center. Israelis have experience with governments of national unity before. Yeah. Labor Party leader Shimon Peres and Likud Party leader Yitzhak Shamir would divide the administration and switch portfolios, each serving out two years as prime minister and foreign minister, respectively. They had another one in 1988 to 1990. And, and there's uh, a history here in that. I just told you about stuff in the 1830s in which, you know, s- Southern slaveocrats and um, an absolutely anti-slavery avatar, John Quincy Adams, are temporarily working together in order to move forward. Wow. Yes, of course. That's our precedent. Yes. Of course, we did then later reach a point where such cooperation just wasn't in the cards. And and that's the Civil War, and that's what we're going to talk about, actually, the January 6th insurrection, and that's the other Jordan. That's Jim Jordan, who had a certain role in this other insurrection, you see, or at least that's the question. And that's why, the, believe it or not, these, these two com- – we're toggling back and forth between Israel and America, but and we're going to talk about border issues as well, because there's talk now about border walls and other things and how that fits into the whole equation. So we're giving you a, a different perspective. We're giving you not just the play-by play, but you're seeing the football field from the Goodyear blimp, as it were, a different point of view, a different angle on the action. Well, you alluded to uh, January 6th. That has some specific implications regarding the 14th Amendment, Section 3. But also there's a more general issue, which we've talked about in the past, but I think is worth bringing up here, which is this notion of the Speaker of the House being third in line for the presidency, counting the president as number one, um, vice president number two, and then the Speaker of the House under the Presidential Succession Act as it currently exists. Of course, there have been other Presidential Succession Acts uh, when the Speaker was not in this position. Um, instead, it was the... The, uh, the Secretary the of State, yeah, mm-hmm. under the, the second Presidential Succession Act. We've really had three, one mm-hmm. in the 1790s, um, one in the late 19th century, 1883 or something like that, and then the current one, 1947. But the middle regime, which is the one sensible and constitutional one, uh, made the Secretary of State um, next in line after the Vice President. You say that the you've implied that the um, Presidential Succession Act as it stands now may not be constitutional. Uh, we've talked about that in the past, but why don't you give us a little bit of a, you know, yeah, uh, nutshell of, on that. Our, our very first episodes, Andy, three now three years ago, um, we started taping on January sixth, I believe. And in those first episodes, we talked about, among other things, my view, which is widely shared among, not universally, but widely shared by scholars across the political spectrum and by many other experts. My view is that the Presidential Succession Act is unconstitutional and a constitutional calamity, a constitutional disaster waiting to happen. Because if it is unconstitutional, and I'll give you the reasons why in in a moment, but if it is, and were Jim Jordan to be elected speaker, heaven forbid, my view would be that if, heaven forbid, something were to happen simultaneously to Biden and to, to Harris, 
my view would be the acting president of the United States would be Anthony Blinken. Because under the statute, it says Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, then Secretary of State. But in Amar's view, and oh, James Madison was on Amar's side on this, and the view of many, many other people, that statute is unconstitutional insofar as it purports to put the Speaker of the House and the Senate Pro Tem of the Senate in the line of succession. If it's unconstitutional, Marbury versus Madison, Con Law 101, it's, it's to that extent null and void, and therefore the next person in line under the statute would be the constitutionally proper person. That's Blinken. And now you see, actually, that this is a constitutional crisis because if Blinken claims he's president, and I'm with him on that, you know, and Jordan claims he's president, and ordinary people have been taught that that's what it is because they read newspapers and newspapers know nothing. Okay, now we have we have a civil war, we have a major constitutional crisis, and whom will the Joint Chiefs salute, even provisionally? Because of course the Supreme Court hasn't you know weighed in on that. Even if somehow there could be a lawsuit, and and even if somehow the Supreme Court's pronouncement would be accepted by everyone. You need to know at every nanosecond who is present, whom the Joint Chiefs have to salute. So, so now you see why I want to have this fight now, get this you know, litigated now. I have worked with members of Congress to actually amend the, uh, the President's Succession Act, and I worked with people of both parties to do it. I worked with Trent Lott who's a Republican. I worked with John Cornyn, who's a Republican. The presidential uh, uh, commission on continuity of government agreed with me about all these things, and we still didn't fix it because, damn it, Nancy Pelosi, especially when you were a lame duck, you know, at the end of your time, why didn't you actually get a statute through to fix the thing before the next Congress, the way in 1863 they fixed the thing before the next Congress? Because we should have a statute today, yesterday, changing the line of succession and making it constitutionally proper. Now, I haven't told you why, in my view, the Speaker of the House is constitutionally ineligible, and I have many, many reasons. I won't get up to 18, but in a nutshell, the biggest reason, and oh, it connects to Section 3 issues for the 14th Amendment. You see, that's why it's all connected, amazingly enough. It connects up to Seth Barrett Tillman and Paulson and Bode and Section 3 and all the rest. My view is the following, that the Speaker of the House is not a proper officer within the meaning of the presidential succession clause of the Constitution. Um, and therefore, the only people who are constitutionally proper to be acting presidents are officers of the United States, strictly understood, which president and the vice president and uh, cabinet officers um, judicial officers, but not members of the House and Senate. Here are the key phrases for the audience members. Okay, The first is the language of Article 1, Section 6. This is called the Incompatibility Clause. And unlike Israel, unlike England, members of our legislature, our Knesset, our parliament, are not allowed to sit in our cabinet. Okay, the members of the, the cabinet in Israel are also members of Knesset. They are members of parliament. The members of uh, Rishi Sunak is an MP, a member of parliament, as well as a PM, prime minister. And the members of his cabinet are members um, of, of parliament. That's not only not the norm in America, it's not permitted in America because of the language of Article 1, Section 6. 
No person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. So if you're a cabinet officer, I would say also if you're president, you cannot be a member of either house. So that's the first point. You can't be in Congress and be an officer of the United States, meaning president, vice president, or cabinet officer. That's my view. And that's you know, most people's view of the incompatibility clause. There are some people say, oh, you can't be in the cabinet, but you can be a president of the United States and a senator or a representative. And I say, no, that doesn't make any sense. Now, the second point. He, officers for this purpose are uh, distinguished from legislators. So you can be in the Senate or in the House, but you can't then be in the cabinet. That's why Hillary Clinton has to step down from her U.S. Senate seat when she wants to be Secretary of State, or Lloyd Benson steps down, or Ken Salazar steps down when they want to join the cabinet. Okay. Well, I think the uh, I think the key there is it says office under the United States, mm-hmm. because if you're the Speaker of the House, you're an officer of the House. That's um, but so you're an officer, but you're just not an officer under the United States. That, that's that's my take. But now here's the second key provision. Um, this is an article. Two, the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the president and vice president, declaring what officer shall then act as president, and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or president shall be elected. And I say it, it, it doesn't say officer under the United States, but that's really what it's about. It's about cabinet officers. They're the ones who are supposed to be not um, members of the Congress. It, and it's not just a textual point about the word officer, although James Madison agreed with me about the text, and as do many other people. It's a basic structural point. Again, I, I'm not going to get up to 18, but but just two or three other reasons why Speaker of the House doesn't make much sense. So point one, um, there's often not a Speaker of the House. This is all about continuity in government. There are going to be cabinet officers always in place, but on day one, there's no Speaker. You see, and, and the old House may have actually adjourned many months before the new House begins. That used to be the case in the old days, actually. And, and there is no Speaker of the House. And even on day one, it takes a while sometimes to get a new Speaker of the House. And there have been many times in American history, not just one or two, where it's taken weeks to pick a speaker. And that's not good. That's point one. Here's a second point. This is a structural point. Ours is a system where you especially, that the presidency is especially like a foreign policy position. It's about war and peace and diplomacy, about Ukraine and Russia and China and the Middle East. God forbid if there's actually a double vacancy. That may be because of actually, you know, some foreign act of war or violence, some clarifying act of of violence. Now, the people who are actually going to know exactly what the administration's policy is, they're the people in the administration. They're meeting daily with the president. You're going to have actually total continuity in government. It makes structural sense. It should be the secretary of state, secretary of defense, not member of the House of Representatives who may know, know nothing about all these things. Third point is that ours is a two-party system. You're seeing how just fiercely a two-party system it is. No Democrat's going to vote for any Republican for Speaker of the House or or vice versa. Oh my God, this is, if, if, 
if you go from a president and his hand-picked successor, the vice president, and his other hand-picked successors, the cabinet officers, if you leapfrog them and go to the Speaker of the House, that person may be the member of the opposite party. This is regime change. This, this is like a, a, an equivalent of like assassinating you know, um, um, one group of officers to get the people who ran against them. It's deeply destabilizing to do. And, and this is not a partisan thing. You know, if you vote for Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, you deserve them and not Tip O'Neill. If you vote for George W. Bush um, and Dick Cheney, you should not get Nancy Pelosi. Yet another point is that speakers, and we're seeing this play out right now, tend to be people in the middle of their party at the 25-yard line, um, so to speak. You really ideally want a president who's in the middle of the country. So again, when you've lost the president and vice president, the last thing you want to do is sort of you know do things that are sort of deeply destabilizing. Why does the speaker in the middle of their party? Because you have to typically pick someone who's got a very safe seat. You're going to get Nancy Pelosi on the left, a, a San Francisco Democrat, or a Newt Gingrich on, on the right, a, a Georgia Republican. You're not going to typically get a swing district speaker because that swing district isn't going to be very safe. You're going to get you know someone who has been there 20 years, uh, won their district every time by 20 points, they're going to be, to repeat, and especially you're seeing it with the caucus, in the middle of their party, which is not in the middle of their country. Now, some of those you might think are just policy arguments. Um, mm -hmm. um, some of those are very strictly constitutional arguments about the word officer. There are others. The 25th Amendment, that Lyndon Johnson Amendment, is all about presidents working very closely with their, their vice presidents, especially since you mentioned Hiroshima and Nagasaki, post A-bomb. You have that between a president and their cabin officers. You do not have that between the president and Speaker of the House. One final illustration of that, because the 25th Amendment is about temporary handoffs of power. It enables a president to step away because he has to undergo an emergency appendectomy, colonoscopy for a day or two, hands over power to the, the vice president, and then uh, takes power back. If you don't have the vice president, you can do that with a cabinet officer. Okay, Blinken, you're in charge for 48 hours, and I'll take it back because you're my guy. I picked you. I can fire you. You're on team Biden. That can't work with the Speaker of the House because, because of the incompatibility clause they just read to you. Once the Speaker of the House, um, even for a minute, for an hour, becomes acting present, they can't be you know, in the House anymore. They have to give up that seat. That's the West Wing episode with Martin Sheen and John Goodman because there wasn't a vice president. And the 25th Amendment is about smooth handoffs back and forth. That works for a cabinet officer. It's the deep spirit of that amendment. It doesn't work for the Speaker of the House. So there are all these reasons why we should have changed this law a long time ago, and we didn't. God forbid, it's Jim Jordan, and then God forbid something happens to, to Biden and Harris simultaneously, there could be civil war in the streets because Blinken will say, I'm president. And here's why he'll say it, because when something happened to Ronald Reagan, when he was shot, actually, here's what Al Haig said in the Situation Room, I believe. He said, now that we had George Herbert Walker Bush, but he was off on a plane um, somewhere maybe in the West Coast or something. But here's actually what he said. He said, constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state. And people mocked him. 
Okay, because the thing that what happened to the Speaker of the House, okay, but but he actually that sentence was constitutionally, gentlemen, and actually constitutionally he was right. So a, a few questions about this. I have to say that, um, like you said it yourself, a lot of these arguments are policy arguments why the statute is unwise. Yes, but statutes that are unwise aren't unconstitutional right. because they're unwise. Right. My structural, my my, my textual argument, yeah, my textual argument is officer and incompatibility clause. Um, my further point, uh, here's another variation on that. Okay. But regarding the incompatibility clause, I mean, you said, well, they have to resign because of the inca- incompatibility And then they're clause. no longer an, even an officer of the Congress. See, th- 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 let me read, it's not just the word officer, it's actually, believe it or not, I'm gonna emphasize the word what, okay, okay. Um, um, and the Congress by law shall declare what officer shall then act as president. It's an ex officio provision of power to an office, okay? You are secretary of state and ex officio, by dint of being secretary of state, acting president. It's an augmentation of the office of secretary of state. But you are still secretary of state and acting president. But the nanosecond, if if the claim is Jeffords um, is speaker of the house, and therefore president, the nanosecond he becomes president, he's no longer Speaker of the House under the incompatibility clause, and he will just pull the constitutional rug out from under him. And Madison makes this argument, and so do I. It's about the word what an officer. That's our rock-solid textual argument. It's supported by all these other things, some of which are policy arguments. Here's why they did it that way. But finally, my 25th Amendment arguments are about the spirit of an amendment that's all about, you know, handoffs back and forth between the president and number two, and how all of that is undermined. It just doesn't work at all with the Speaker of the House. So there's the text of Article 2, the word officer and the word what and the idea of ex officio augmentation. There's the Can you spirit explain of our audience what ex officio augmentation means. Ex officio means by dint of your office. An augmentation is just an addition. So you have additional powers not as Akil Amar, but as professor um, at the Yale Law School. You know, um, not as Peter Salovey, but as president of Yale. University and it matters in law often whether something is individual or official. So let's take, for example, a lawsuit that you bring for future relief, for prospective relief. Your name is Clarence Earl Gideon and you want to be released by the warden in Florida prison. His name is Wainwright. This was 60 years ago, Gideon versus Wainwright. I was actually just at an event celebrating the 60th anniversary of Gideon versus Wainwright. If Wainwright, for some reason, you're you're not suing him because really what he did anything personally, he's just the superintendent of the prison and you're suing him ex officio. And if he, for some reason, were to die or resign under a federal rule of civil procedure, I think it's 22.1, we'd automatically swap in his successor, because you're really suing the office, ex officio, okay, going forward. As an office, there are certain rights and responsibilities. Now, it would be different if it were some damage suit against someone for some past action that he, he did as an individual or maybe even you know wearing his badge. If you're suing a school superintendent, because the school district has improper policies on religion, 
or improper race policies, whether racially discriminatory in an old-fashioned sense or affirmative action given the students for fair admission. And again, that superintendent resigns, you're going to swap in someone else because it's ex officios by dint of the office. And now just to remind our audience, the, the words here, it says declaring what officer shall then act as president uh, and such officer. So it's really the office, you know, it's, it's the what rather than the who that seems to me interesting. It's, it's an objective definition of the, the, the role rather than the person. Now, sometimes, Andy, I've taken the position that you know, in context, officer could actually mean past officer. In an impeachment context, I don't want you to be able to resign one minute before, one second before the gavel of conviction comes down and escape disqualification. Okay, so yeah, that's because it's like a, a personal, you, you know, it's something that that person did rather than something that the office did. It did in the past. So you retain responsibility for that action even after you leave the office. But here it's about who. Whereas if you didn't actually commit a specific action, you know, you, but rather it's just the office then when you leave, the office has the responsibility, not you. And that's why it's an ex officio augmentation or addition of powers. It's the powers attached to the office itself. Secretary of State includes as part of the office the capacity to serve as president in certain situations. And you're saying Speaker of the House does not contain that because it's not... And, 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 and the nanosecond that you become you know, acting president... You know, then under the incompatibility clause, you have to resign your position as representative, and now presumably you're no longer speaker, and you just pulled the rug out from under yourself, don't you see? And that wouldn't happen for a secretary of state. You'd still be secretary of state and simultaneously acting president. Okay, well, I think you, you want to extend your textual argument then. It's not just a question of what officer. It's with the words that come after that is what officer shall then act as president. Mm-hmm. Not what officer shall be the president, mm-hmm. but instead shall act as president. Andy, this is amazing because actually, and I've never seen this before, there's so many words here that actually support the position. It's not just officer and officer and what office rather than the who. You know, it's act as president, as, as you just said, but it's also shall then act as president. It's about going forward. It's the future, not the past. So all these words together create a gestalt here. Um, Congress has the part to declare what officer, you know, not what person, shall then, going forward, it's the, it's the office, um, act as president, do certain things, and such officer shall accordingly, blah, 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 shall act accordingly until. So all these words together actually are of a piece. And the piece is it's an ex officio augmentation of an existing office. And I think the office here, typically they're imagining a cabinet office rather than the office of Speaker of the House, which presumably Um, You're going to have to give up when you give up your seat as a representative. I know there's some complexities. Can you be speaker even if you're not representative and all this? They would have talked about all these issues, you see, if they were actually actually thinking about speakers of the House rather than cabinet officers. Well, I think it goes to your point about saying we could sort of re-describe the position. Secretary of State who will act as president in the disability of the president and the 
vice president. That would be a description of the office of secretary of state. Mm -hmm. But it can't be a description of speaker of the house because you can't be the speaker of the house at that point. Brilliant. So it can't be a description of that office. Brilliant. Brilliant. So if you can't describe the office that way, then that seems to me, you know, a, a disqualification of that office. And, and Madison said all of these points in a, in a more cryptic way. Where? Um, uh, in the debates about the first Presidential Succession Act, when he said we're doing something unconstitutional here. So, so then could the, pre- the person that acts as president be under 35 years old? Um, no. Um, for reasons having to do with statutes that um, are in place and that are discussed in America's Constitution, a biography. Let me actually pull the book off my shelf and read you the statute. Uh, This is from the last chapter of America's Constitution, a biography, and I have three end notes that discuss some of these issues. The current succession law, 3 U.S.C. section 19E, excludes from the line of succession any officer who is not, quote, eligible to the office of president under the Constitution, unquote. So Section 19E of the current statute, 3 U.S.C., prohibits that. Okay. Of course, the other thing is, you know, now we've got this uh, functionary serving as as, uh, acting speaker. If the president and vice president were to die now, would that person be acting as president, or would it move on to the president pro tempore of the Senate, another person who presumably would be ineligible um, under uh, right. that under, or, under, other uh, argument? But, right. But, under, but, under my view, um, and right. neither is constitutionally eligible. In addition, I would say the best reading of the statute um, would be that a provisional speaker doesn't count for presidential succession. One final point. My friend Steve Calabresi says, uh, building on Seth Barrett Tillman, oh, presidents aren't officers. And I'm saying, no, that's a big mistake. Uh, you know, they, are, they hold office. They're impeachable. They get removable from office. He says, well, they haven't received a commission. I say, yes, they received a commission equivalent. And that's when Congress certifies them as president in a joint session presided over by the vice president. That's the commission equivalent. That's the January 6th moment. Since you're now talking about president's pro tem, I just want to remind our audience, this is not the Senate majority leader. And by tradition, presidents pro tem are often the senior, the most member of the um, a majority party. Um, this includes, you know, octogenarians and nonagenarians. You know, it, it includes people like Strom Thurmond in his dotage. No offense intended, but Pat Leahy when he's way too old, Orrin Hatch when he's way too old, Chuck Grassley when he's way too old. It actually, by rights, could have been Diane Feinstein. Now she. Um, happily was uh, prevailed upon to not assert this. And so they gave it to Patty Murray instead. But actually, if they had followed their uh, standard traditions, it's the senior, you know, it's the long, uh, the senior most member of the majority party. That would have been Dianne Feinstein. And now you see, you know, audience members, some of these are, yes, pure policy arguments and not constitutional arguments. Really, you lose the president and you lose the vice president and maybe it was an act of terrorism, all the rest. And there's not a party shift here, but really, Dianne Feinstein is the person you want to this moment because she's not all there. This is no way to run, you know, the, the most important country in the history of the world. You know, we're picking, we're talking about who's the leader of the free world at a moment of global crisis, whether you're talking about Ukraine or the Middle East or America for that matter. And we're not 
serious about stuff, in part because we're so darn partisan. What I'm saying is not partisan. I was shrieking about this when we had Republican presidents and Democratic speakers of the House. Let's take actually Richard Nixon, because we had the great Bob Woodward on recently on Nixon versus Trump. Okay, so Nixon picked Spiro Agnew as his running mate in part as impeachment insurance. He figured no one would ever impeach him and convict him because they'd be stuck with Agnew and, and this was you know like a poison pill if this were corporate law. Okay, but unfortunately for Nixon's, you know, Nixon was brilliant this way, but unfortunately, you know, for him, Agnew was a total crook and had to resign in a scandal because he, he, as governor of Maryland, had taken all sorts of money, you know, things similar to what Menendez is being accused of now. And, and by the way, the Democrats, they should be getting rid of Menendez immediately, but they're not because our margin is so thin and blah, blah, blah. And so we're worried about stuff like that. So anyway. Well, that's, um, that's I mean, they don't think that uh, Governor Murray is going to appoint the Republican. That's, that's, a good, that's, that, that's a nice point. So maybe we have no good excuse. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, a very nice point. Murphy, maybe. Governor Murphy. Yeah, Sorry. that's a v- very nice point. Okay. But anyway, Agnew is out. So Nixon invokes the 25th Amendment. The first time this part of it had been invoked, the 25th Amendment has several provisions. And one of them is about how we don't want a vice presidential vacancy. Okay. And we don't precisely, because we don't want to have to fall back on the Presidential Succession Act. And the way we avoid vice presidential vacancies is by providing a way for filling the vice presidency when it becomes vacant, either because the vice president has become president or because um, because the president has died or resigned or because the vice president has died or resigned. So the first invocation of the 25th Amendment, the vice president has resigned, Spiro Agnew, and Nixon nominates Ford. Okay, but at the time, the Speaker of the House is a Democrat, Carl Albert, and the Democrats slow walk the confirmation process because if, you know, God forbid anything should happen to the president, they'll inherit the presidency under this horrible Presidential Succession Act. It's giving them bad incentives. The the, the 25th Amendment should be about a quick and speedy confirmation of a perfectly competent successor. And Gerald Ford was absolutely great. Okay. He should have been confirmed immediately. And they took a long time to do it in part because the Presidential Succession Act was giving them very bad incentives contra to the spirit of the 25th Amendment. Now Nixon is forced out, thanks to Bob Woodward. Thank you, Bob. And now Ford is president. He moves up, but now the vice presidency is vacant once again. Once again, the 25th Amendment is triggered. This time, it's a Nelson Rockefeller who's picked. And again, there needs to be a special confirmation process involving not just the Senate, but the House, You know, um, because this is an important position, not just an cabinet position. And once again, the Democrats slow walk the thing. And they slow walk the thing because they control the House. If, God forbid, something were to happen to President Gerald Ford, they'd inherit the presidency. um, And they therefore don't confirm Rockefeller quickly. And they say, well, there were issues to investigate. Fine, but they should be done quickly. The Democrats had bad incentives to string the thing out in violation of the spirit of the 25th Amendment because of this horrible Presidential Succession Act. So our audience should know, maybe Akilah's wrong about all this, but I promise you it's not partisan. I've taken this position no matter which party controlled the presidency, no matter which party controlled the House. I'll remind our audience that in the modern period, every president since Lyndon Johnson, except Jimmy Carter, and happy birthday, ex-president Carter, 
so glad you're still around. You were, you're a, a great American, and we salute you. But every president since Lyndon Johnson, with the exception of Jimmy Carter, has faced an opposition party Speaker of the House for at least part of his time as president. Every Republican president has faced a Democrat Speaker of the House for at least part of his time, like Trump and Pelosi. Every Democrat president has faced a Republican Speaker of the House part of his time, like Clinton Gingrich. Okay? So, and either way, I'm saying this is deeply dysfunctional. This is not the way to run a country to actually create assassination incentives such that some crazy madman, by taking out both the president and the vice president, simultaneously can affect regime change in America. And by the way, intention with the spirit. This is many of my arguments aren't just about founding and the words officer, what, you know, act as, but 25th Amendment arguments about the spirit of the 25th Amendment, which contemplate a close working relationship between the president and number two, and I would say, and number three, you're supposed to fill that vacancy fast under the, the 25th Amendment. And right now, you know, the, the incentives are contrary to that. And, 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 um, uh, um, and uh, the idea of the 25th Amendment is you shouldn't have, you know, a vacancy uh, for, in the vice presidency for long, and yet we do because of the Presidential Succession Act. So, so the 25th Amendment spirit is really not being followed here. Okay, well, I think we're, we're I want to cover two other things before we, we stop here. One of them uh, has to do with, so, all right, you say that, um, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, God forbid, are wiped out. Now, you, you've got a, you've got Anthony Blinken on the one end, and you've got whoever, you know, nobody on the other end. It's Patty Murray, I guess. But, but let's say the, that the, the Republicans confirm a, a speaker, or, or nominate a speaker, vote in a speaker, and so now you have a constitutional crisis. Well, how is that going to be resolved? So, let's assume, I guess, that it goes to the court. Right. I'm not sure. I guess the person I'm not sure who would have standing there, but, uh, you know, one guy will try to assert the the power of the presidency and the other one will sue, I guess. Um, And and that's the I wrote a Hollywood treatment about this 20 years ago. Yes. But it was called Electoral College. It was really interesting and edgy back then. Now it looks unimaginative. Okay. well, Hollywood aside, you're good at reading the court. Um, how does the court come out on this? Do you think the court would vote to to invalidate the law? And if they did, um, what would the remedy be? Would it be that the previous Presidential Succession Act becomes law, or would it be that they just go down this act until you find somebody that should be constitutionally eligible? Um, well, I, the, all these are nightmare scenarios because someone presumably is in place and trying to oust a person who's already in place. That's why I wrote this fictionalized a- account of all this. It was actually, it was a Speaker of the House, not very different from Jim Jordan, and a against a Secretary of State, not that different from Blinken, in fact. And it went to the Supreme Court, and I it had a kind of a made-up ending just because if it gets to the Supreme Court, we're already, you know, deep in, in deeply in crisis and so i don't know a lot would depend on specifics of where we are that i can't you know easily anticipate cuz the court w- would not want 
to, to do things that were destabilizing in the moment. So I, I don't even know who's in place right now and with what amount of practical consensus. I think the court would be hesitant to undo something that had been acquiesced in and that was the status quo. But if, and if there's blood in the streets, you know, then who, who, who knows how that all plays out. That's why we should change the statute now. Um, and, and that's why I worked to repeat with the likes of Trent Lott, a Republican from Mississippi, the majority leader of the Senate at the time, John Cornyn, a conservative Republican from Texas. They were the people that I worked with in testifying before joint sessions of the House and Senate to uh, actually uh, change the statute um, to move to a proper line of cabinet succession. Well, it seems to me that the time, the best politically, the best time to do that is when you have the president and the and the House of Representatives of the same party. And that's why I was urging President Biden and outgoing Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer to pass such a statute, at the very least, to pass such a statute in the lame duck period after the off-year election when Nancy Pelosi was still speaker before Kevin McCarthy's election, okay? They could have passed such a statute in December of 2022, and they didn't do it. Yeah, I don't think that's the ideal time. You're going to need 60 votes in the Senate and, you know, when... when so you say, but we've had episodes on filibuster reform. You well, don't need 60 votes. Well, but they're not going to do votes. it for that. They're not going to do it for that. They're, they're not going to... Because they, they're not constitutionally serious about anything. God damn it, okay? And this is why now I'm mad at them and our country. This is why we have gridlock, okay? Because the rule isn't 60. It's 50 plus one. That's actually in the Constitution. Yes, I think actually... For legitimacy, they should have done it at the very beginning of that term, behind a veil of ignorance, because it would look less stinky. But any time, God forbid, that Nancy Pelosi should do anything that should actually make her, you know, less godlike. Okay, she thinks she's next in line. No, damn it, she wasn't constitutionally next in line. You take oaths to the Constitution. I'm mad at them all, the Republicans and the Democrats. Yes, because I've been urging this forever. It's a good government reform. It's not partisan. And you're right. The easiest way to show this not partisan is to do it at a time of unified government behind a veil of ignorance that will go into effect actually after the next election. Come what may. Yeah, you could have a sunset or something like that if you have that's, that's what, nothing. That's what I've been arguing forever. Okay. For but, I guess but, a sunrise, not a sunset. Sunrise. But, but here's the problem. Okay, the present pro tem of the Senate doesn't like this because it, it cuts <laughs> them down to sign. The Speaker of the House doesn't like this because it actually makes them feel less significant. Because what does the press say? The first thing that they say all the time is next in line, third in line, third in line. And they're not constitutionally. Mm. Okay. Um, then finally, you know, you mentioned a problem before about um, how the Speaker is not from the middle of the, of the country. It's from the the middle of their party, or worse. Um, in this case, you're not going to get someone in the middle of the Republican Party, it looks like. This is a problem similar to the problem that we have in primaries. Yes. Um, where primaries don't produce presidential nominees necessarily that are in the middle of the country. Um, now, there may be other forces that push the nominees to the middle, and and we've seen Joe Biden move, move I think, more to the middle of the country. He kind of started off in the middle, 
and you sort of see it. He goes a little bit to the left for the for the primaries this time. He doesn't really have to worry about being primaried, whatever. But I think his natural position is more towards the middle. But that's the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, do you have a, a solution or a suggested solution for what we can do? Um, you know. Uh, Perhaps with voting rules in the House, in the prime, in primaries, and things like that, that can help address this part. We're going to have another episode at some point, and I have the perfect guest. She's amazing, um, and she believes in rank choice voting, a single transferable voting. It can't be used in every single situation. She's the expert. She's a friend of mine. Um, I'm going to bring her on and have her in a future episode explain how ranked choice voting would solve some of the problems that, that, that ail us. But, be, but, but Andy, the, the other thing that we had talked about that I do want to mention, because it's so interesting, is how Jim Jordan interacts with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and the Bode-Paulson arguments that Section 3 is self executing? And can a proper member of the House um, who has taken an oath to the whole Constitution in good conscience vote for Jim Jordan given Section 3? So that's um, something that I'd love to talk about. I definitely want to talk about that, Akil. And actually, I would take it a step further, which is, you know, if, if you can't vote for him, under Section 3. Well, Section 3 applies to members of Congress as well. Exactly. So how could he even be a sitting member of Congress? That's the compl- those are some of the complexities. And and here's how it you know, connects to Bob Bo- Paulson. Because it's one thing to not vote to expel or exclude someone, and you just do to do nothing at all. But it's another thing to affirmatively vote for someone. And these are some of the issues that Paulson and Bode talked about when we talked about who decides what self-executing actually means and doesn't mean. So these are some of the complexities we're going to talk about because it turns out that even if Jim Jordan did not engage in insurrection, did he genuinely give aid and comfort to those who did? And I think that's not a preposterous claim. And you know, Andy, that I have had some you know, I, I, questions about how to think about all those things, but oh my God, it's coming to roost right now in this election. So we definitely have to talk about it. And of course, a lot more on the other Jordan, which yes. we touched on briefly, but- Oh, I have me, lots just... to say about that and America's borders and the national security issues that drove America at the founding and Abe Lincoln's ideas about walls and, and, and current debates about walls on on America's southern border, lots to talk about. And one final tease, audience, um, in in uh, this discussion, you're going to get a little bit of a preview of Akil's next book. So another thing to look forward to. Okay, so until then, can't wait. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.